Hello, everyone. Thank you for this opportunity to contribute to this series of talks on 1 Corinthians, the name given to a letter written to Christians in Corinth by the Apostle Paul, a pioneer and leader of the early church, and which is to be found in the New Testament of the Bible. This dates back to roughly 20 years after the end of Jesus' life on earth. The passage I'll be looking at comes from chapter 11, and it relates to Jesus' teaching on the Lord's Supper, often referred to today as breaking bread or Holy Communion. As I've reflected on how to present this talk, I'm aware that in the time I have available, it is difficult to do justice to the symbolic richness and significance of the simple act of eating bread and drinking wine together. For many of you watching this, this will be a very familiar part of a Sunday service. However, I don't want to assume that this is going to be the case for everyone. To use a food analogy, it feels a bit like I've come into a kitchen which is incredibly well stocked with all kinds of choice ingredients, herbs and spices. The cupboards and the fridge are full and I have the task of selecting just a few of these to prepare a light but hopefully enjoyable meal for my friends. I've had a bit of fun going through the cupboards, as it were, exploring the significance of the Lord's Supper and thinking about the implications that this might have for me as a follower of Jesus. So with this in mind, I've asked Debbie to read through the passage before I go on to make a few observations on the following questions. What is the significance of the Lord's Supper? Why does Paul talk about the Lord's Supper in his letter to the Corinthian church? And how might Paul's teaching be relevant for the church today? 1 Corinthians 11 verses 17 to 34. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat, for when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. 
That is why many among you are weak and ill, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. So to start with the significance of the bread and wine, Paul is referring here directly back to the gospel accounts, namely from Matthew, Mark and Luke, of the last evening of Jesus' earthly life before his crucifixion the following day, commonly known as Good Friday. The context for this is the annual Passover meal still celebrated in Jewish homes today. Some of you will recall the visual demonstration of Passover given by Richard Harvey a couple of years ago, which really helped to bring this alive. Passover itself has an even longer history, which we first hear about in the Old Testament book of Exodus, chapter 11. God is about to deliver the fledgling nation of Israel from 400 years of slavery and captivity in Egypt. He commands each household to slaughter a lamb, and daub blood on the lintels and doorposts of each home with the promise that he would literally pass over their houses and that they would avoid the destructive plague which would cause the death of every firstborn across the whole of Egypt. The symbolism runs deep here and warrants further study in its own right. Uh, Broadly speaking, however, the lamb itself represents a substitutionary sacrifice of one life given in lieu of another. In addition, God commanded that the Israelites eat unleavened bread, uh, that's bread without yeast, for seven days to remind them of the fact that they had been hastily driven out of Egypt and had not had time to prepare food for themselves. Passover became an annual act of remembrance, an opportunity for one generation to pass on to the next stories of God's miraculous intervention and deliverance, and which became weaved into the fabric of the nation. In a contemporary context, you could say that the annual Remembrance Day ceremonies to honor those who have given their lives in global conflicts serve a similar purpose for many nations today. The Passover meal was already deeply embedded in Jewish culture and tradition by the time of Jesus' earthly ministry over a thousand years later. Jesus dramatically heightened its meaning by making a direct association between the bread and the wine and his own body and blood. He was clearly referring to his impending death just hours before he was betrayed by one of his closest followers and crucified. This was a very common and brutal form of execution used by the Romans against condemned criminals. Passover speaks of the miraculous deliverance of one specific nation by God from slavery and oppression and into a unique relationship with him. Jesus, as the Son of God, gave up his own life as a type of Passover lamb. In so doing, he offers to every human being from every nation for all time the promise of knowing him personally through releasing us from everything which inhibits our ability to be the people we are meant to be. For example, things like deep-seated guilt, shame, fear, and low self-esteem. 
this is what Jesus meant when he talked about a new covenant in his blood. John said this in his gospel account, for this is how much God loved the world. He gave his one and only unique son as a gift. So now everyone who believes in him will never perish, but experience everlasting life. The good news is that Jesus' death wasn't the end of the story. The scriptures clearly testify to his being raised from the dead just two days later on what we now celebrate as Easter Sunday. Death couldn't keep him down. How amazing is that? Based on Jesus' resurrection, Paul puts forward a compelling argument at the end of his letter for the hope of a resurrection life beyond this one for all of us who dare to believe it to be true. Moving on, the scriptures record that, just a few weeks after the events I have outlined, Jesus returned to his heavenly Father. Shortly after that, the Holy Spirit came in power on Jesus' followers, and the early church came into being. From the accounts we have of the early church, we get a sense of how Jesus' exhortation to remember him is applied. In Acts 2, verses 42 to 46, it says this, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. What strikes me here is that breaking of bread clearly implies the act of communion and that this possibly extends to the sharing of meals within individual homes. The other thing I notice, and I'll come back to this later, is that there is a real sense of togetherness and a supernatural dimension to the way that the church is living. People are in awe of what they're seeing and experiencing, and the church is growing exponentially. So this leads to my second question. Paul had a huge emotional investment in the church at Corinth. He helped to establish it alongside a couple called Priscilla and Aquila. That's in Acts 18, before moving on to Ephesus, from where news subsequently reached him that things were not going well back in Corinth. We have been hearing from different speakers during this series about different aspects of life and culture in the city which Paul felt the need to address. We have touched on issues of leadership, authority, and spiritual pride, and attitudes towards sex and expression of freedom. Fundamentally, these were all factors which were causing major divisions and disunity in the church. A fundamental problem that Paul is trying to address in this letter is what we might call syncretism. That is, an inherent tendency towards combining different belief systems and practices. We see that happening at different times within the nations of Israel and Judah in the Old Testament when... Although expressly forbidden by God, they adopted patterns of idol worship and sacrifice which characterized the nations around them. From its early beginnings, the church has always been called to be distinctively different from the prevailing culture around it, both 
in the way that it expresses love and commitment to God and in how the church treats others, even its enemies, with care and respect. In Corinth, people were converting to Christianity but bringing a serious amount of baggage with them. When we look at Paul's charge against the church that some of them were getting drunk at the communion table, this is perhaps not so surprising in the light of the fact that one of the prevailing cults in the city was the worship of Dionysus, the Greek god of wine. Worshippers would intentionally get drunk, believing that once in, in an intoxicated state, they would have some sort of mystical communion with Dionysus. Add to that a well-established business enterprise of temple prostitution within the city, and it's no wonder that Paul was so exercised by the things he was hearing about. The other thing he notes here is the disparity between rich and poor, particularly when they come to share an agape meal. Agape translates from Greek into English as love, but which specifically refers to the highest form of selfless, unconditional love that we can experience in our worship of God and express in our relationships with others. Whilst the purpose was for people to bring and share food together, and to celebrate the Lord's Supper at the same time, the rich were indulging themselves whilst those who were poor were going without. So, what is the essence of Paul's teaching here? The first thing I would point out is his statement, for I received from the Lord. This really stood out to me as it suggests direct revelation through the Holy Spirit. This does not necessarily mark him out as unique, I believe that all of us can hear God speaking to us through the Holy Spirit. It is, after all, the work of the Holy Spirit that enables us to come to know Jesus as our Lord and Saviour. Paul's assertion does, however, indicate a clear sense of his conviction and authority to bring a message about the centrality of communion in the life of the church. His exhortation in verse 26 says this, For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I really like the declaration that is included in some church liturgy. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. I think something powerful happens when we affirm what we know and what we believe to be true. I believe Paul realizes this, this too. And that is why he places so much emphasis upon making this proclamation in the right way, i.e. where there is a true expression of love and unity amongst believers in terms of a deep and meaningful sharing of lives which stands out against a prevailing culture of self-centeredness and sensuality. The other argument Paul makes for the sanctity of the communion table would no doubt have been difficult and challenging for the Corinthian church to hear as I think it is for us today. He states that some of them had become ill or even died because of the unworthy manner in which they had approached it and in doing so had brought judgment on themselves. This is difficult stuff and I can only offer you my tentative thoughts on this before turning to my third and final question. We live in a broken world where sickness and death hold sway. Christians, of course, are not immune to these things. I think we all know that. However, to put our trust in Jesus Christ and in his death and resurrection places us directly under the mercy and goodness of a loving God 
who has made it possible for us to live with him and enjoy being with him forever. That may bring psychological, emotional, and sometimes even physical healing in this life as a promise and guarantee of a resurrection life to come. Paul's discourse here suggests to me that it is possible through wrong motives and actions to distance ourselves in some way from the healing flow of God's presence. Maybe this is what he means when he talks about judgment. To look at this in a more positive and hopeful light, Paul goes on to frame judgment in terms of discipline, which, using the metaphor of a loving parent disciplining their child, points to the possibility of a restoration of a Christian's relationship with God the Father, a relationship which has been temporarily broken rather than permanently destroyed. Indeed, in a way, Paul models this rather well to the Corinthian church. His tone here may be one of exasperation, but as he reflects later in his subsequent letter, uh, that's in 2 Corinthians 2 verse 4, For I wrote to you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. So how can we learn from Paul's teaching? As I said at the start of my talk, for some of us, taking communion has been for years a regular part of a Sunday service. There is a risk that we can become over-familiar with it. If this is the case, I think the simple message is to remind ourselves afresh of the significance of what we are doing and why. We are calling upon the presence of God and making a powerful proclamation of faith in Jesus Christ, the one who died, who is risen, and will one day return to establish his kingdom for a new heaven and a new earth, and of which we will be a part. Communion opens the way for a powerful encounter with the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It is a place of restoration in our relationship with him, where we can find healing and wholeness, where we can be set free to be the people God intends us to be. But that requires humility and a willingness to take a step back, to think about and acknowledge where we have messed up in our lives, and maybe hurt or upset other people. In the process. Jesus commands us to be proactive in seeking reconciliation with others where this is needed before we come before God in our worship. This seems very pertinent in the context of Paul addressing areas of division in the Corinthian church and no doubt to us today. Equally, we're called to celebrate diversity, to be inclusive and welcoming of others whose identity, social status, and cultural background may be different to our own. And to look out for those, not least in these difficult days of a COVID pandemic, who are in need of a practical, emotional, or spiritual support. I have previously spoken at Resound on Psalm 133, which celebrates the blessing that flows from heaven when God's people live together in unity. Paul sums this up nicely at an earlier stage in his letter. That's in chapter 10, verses 16 to 17. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body. 
It feels very appropriate to offer a space for us to take communion together. Obviously, we can't do that with each other in person, but there will be the opportunity to do so by Zoom after the online service, if you're watching this live, as it were. If this is not possible, you may want to arrange to do this with your small group, if you're part of one. Doing this more informally with family and friends over a meal where this is possible really works for me. I often find that it is at more spontaneous times like these that I've really sensed the presence of the Holy Spirit. So thank you for listening, um, and I'd like to pray to finish. Father God, thank you for sending your Son to live amongst us and to die for us as an expression of your unconditional love for us and your commitment to us. Thank you that for everyone who believes in Jesus, your promise is that they will never perish but experience everlasting life. Thank you that you've given us the symbols of bread and wine as a potent reminder of this. By your Holy Spirit, I pray that you will come to us now and reveal to us in deeper ways the reality, the truths they represent. And in doing so, set us free to live life to the full. Your glory. Amen.